During his time as president, Richard Nixon recorded more than 3,700 hours of White House conversations. They're part private discussions, part deliberations, part confessionals, and 100% unfiltered. This is Presidential Recordings, Season 2, The Nixon Presidency. We'll hear Richard Nixon's phone calls with congressional leaders and Supreme Court justices, his discussions after his 1972 landslide re-election win, and of course, we'll hear about Watergate and his resignation. June 17, 1972. Good evening. We have a mystery story out of Washington. Five people have been arrested and charged with breaking into the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee in the middle of the night. The Democratic National Committee is located in the Watergate office building. The burglars forced a stairwell door, then taped its latch open. The door, now part of police evidence, was noticed by one of the guards employed by the Watergate complex. At first, the police found nothing. Then they spied five men crouching behind some desks. Few presidential scandals occupy a place in American culture, like Watergate, when five burglars broke into the Democratic National Committee headquarters and set off a series of investigations that ultimately led to President Nixon's resignation. One of the most public of those was held in the U.S. Senate, and one of its major discoveries, the existence of a voice-activated recording system. So you were employed on January 21, 1969, and continue to be employed until March 14 of this year. Is that correct? That's correct. Mr. Butterfield, are you aware of the installation of any listening devices in the Oval Office of the President? I was aware of listening devices. Yes, sir. When were those devices placed in the Oval Office? Approximately the summer of 1970, I cannot begin to recall the precise date. My guess, Mr. Thompson, is that the installation was made between, and this is a very rough guess, April or May of 1970 and perhaps the end of the summer or early fall 1970. Are you aware of any devices that were installed in the executive office building office of the president? Yes, sir, at that time. Were they installed at the same time? They were installed at the same time. Could you tell us a little bit about how those devices worked, uh, how they were activated, for example? I don't have the technical knowledge, but I will tell you what I know about how those devices were triggered. Uh, they were installed, of course, for historical purposes to record the president's business and they were installed in his two offices the oval office and the eob office that exchange on july 13 1973 between senate committee investigator fred thompson and nixon's senior assistant alexander butterfield blew the watergate investigation wide open up until then a white house recording system was only a rumor but armed with butterfield's admission the committee's lead investigator, Sam Dash, zeroed in. If either Mr. Dean, Mr. Haldeman, Mr. Ehrlichman, Mr. Colson had particular meetings in the Oval Office with the president on any particular dates that had been testified before this committee, there would be a tape recording with the president of that full conversation, would there not? Yes, sir. Now, one word, therefore, to reconstruct the conversations at any particular date what would be the best way to reconstruct those conversations, Mr. Butterfield, in the President's Oval Office? 
Well, in the obvious manner, Mr. Dash, to obtain the tape and play it. The committee would spend the next several months trying to get the White House recordings, including taking the then unprecedented step of suing the president in federal court. But that's a story for another podcast. First, a little history. We'll start on September 15, 1972. That's when a federal grand jury indicted seven men in connection to the Watergate break-in. The charges were conspiracy, burglary, and violation of federal wiretapping laws. Four months later, two of the men, G. Gordon Liddy and James McCord, were convicted on all charges. Four others, including E. Howard Hunt, had already pled guilty. The judge presiding over the case, John Sirica, had threatened all of them with long prison sentences unless they talked to prosecutors. A month after that, the U.S. Senate voted 77-0 to create a special committee to investigate the scandal. A month after that, Judge Sirica read a letter in open court from James McCord that confessed the existence of a wider conspiracy. On April 9th, White House Counsel John Dean began talking to federal prosecutors, and the Watergate conspiracy started to unravel. Four days later, on April 13th, President Nixon called his chief of staff, H.R. Haldeman, they talked about Jeb Magruder, who was deputy director of the president's 1972 re-election campaign. Days earlier, Magruder had admitted to lying under oath about the campaign's involvement in the Watergate break-in. Analyzing this Dean thing and so forth, uh, it's your view that Dean probably didn't know the time after the election they met what the truth really was. Is that right? I don't think he knew for sure. That's what he, he guessed it might be. I think he guessed it. Well, we all guessed. guessed.
that he's brought in here at this uh, point. I mean, uh, I don't know what you're guess, though. I mean, it's a curious thing. I mean, it's, I mean, just part of the I mean, game. And, uh, and almost making it up, though, Bob, because I don't. He may be victimized on it. I'm not sure he's maybe by his lawyer. Yeah, or somebody else. Or by the press. You know, this, that was my first impression, was that this was a press maneuver. You know, they, they call you and say, uh, okay, yeah. the other guy's stuff, uh, you better yeah. let's, yeah. Let's, let's talk about it. So, uh, McGruder is going to, uh, has already, he's, he's talked, and he's going to, he's, he's given a statement. You see, this, this went so far that, but when you examine Chuck, he said he, he, he backed off the tape and then backed off the transcript. That's right. Well, God damn him. He shouldn't do that with you. I mean, really. Not, but I mean, does. I understand with others, but not with you. No, but he just does. He, he is compulsively unable to limit himself to the to the basic truth he has to embellish. Well, you know, the real problem is John. God damn, I feel for him. Yep. And, uh, geez, if I were advising him, I'd advise him to come forward and say, gee, I... You know, I've told the truth all along, and but I take the responsibility for this thing. You know, I mean that's that's his way out. He really ought to do that rather than go to that's hard line this damn thing. He says I didn't know about it, I didn't approve it, but I take the responsibility for it. Right? Yep. And they let him off. They'd say, well, you know, this great man was naturally right. up and ill-served by his people, and that's too bad. That's right. Obviously, he had other pressures on him, and. You know, one of those things. But he really ought to do that. But who the hell can talk to John? Moore is the only one, and I don't know whether he's got much influence anymore. Well, I think I'll get Moore in tomorrow and talk to him a little about that. I think that would be helpful. I don't know. Uh, or is that bad? Yeah, I guess it's bad. I really ought to stay away from it, you know, because yeah. basically uh, it's just a, a, a consumption of time and the rest, but I really don't know what the hell did happen, you know. I don't, I don't really know, you know. And uh, and I I feel for all these people. I'd like to do something to save them all, but there isn't a goddamn thing you can do, is there? Do you think of anything? Nope, I don't. I mean, you say don't let Dean go, like John says. Well, for Christ's sake, we're gonna leave, but somebody else is gonna go, isn't that it? Yep. I think you're sure. I think you just cannot obscure the the truth, the elementary truth. You've just got to, whatever it is, we've got to be prepared to live with it. And we will live with it. And if say, don't parties, be, don't be too damn worried about it. And we've got to live with that, too. Don't be too damn concerned about it. And they say Mitchell, the attorney general, and the president's campaign manager. It's good to be. Let me tell you. Yes, that's tough. Any tougher than Adams? No. My God, Adams was Eisenhower's alter ego. He was with him at the heart attack. He was president, actually. That's right. You know, let's face it. And it was personal banality and not just a caper. This is just a caper, you know, like your poll showed. Yeah. When is that poll going to run?
the economy, which is the thing we know knocks things down, and which they say does. It's really somewhat the Eisenhower syndrome, basically. He's holding you up. Uh, when Eisenhower, you know, when he went down to about 48 or 49 in 58, when the economy went very bad, but it was much worse. I mean, basically, he was unemployment then, not not inflation, but just unemployment. But he went down to 49 percent. That was his lowest, and then came up again. But what held him up always was the fact that he thought he was the best guy to run the world. Yes, and that's the thing we've got to keep in our minds all the time. That's the thing where all this gobbledygook about my going out, you know, and being nice little baby old ladies and all the rest, uh, you know, it has to be put in perspective. That, that I think, is, is good, but, but it's marginal. I really think that's marginal. Or, or do you agree? I don't know. I mean, I, this is something that, you know, if you, if you talk to, to, to John or Ray Price or I'm sure Sapphire, the rest, they'd say that's the most important thing in the world, you know, to be, be a warm, nice human being like we all know you. But God damn it, the press isn't going to print it, are they? Nope. And the television isn't going to cover it, are they? Nope. Not, not. So? Done. So what do you do? Occasional. Just have a few events? Is that, don't you think so? Just yeah. a few events? You just keep doing them. You know, as in the normal course, you don't don't go overboard, and you you don't avoid opportunities when you got them. Right. Make a few more. Go out in the country a little more. That I want to do. Make as many as we can. I think going out to the country is good. I mean, even though it doesn't affect the pool, it just lets the country see. Don't you agree? Yep. Right. Well, anyway, I'll be interested to see what Colson's latest gambit is. Yeah. Bye. Bye. President Nixon and his chief of staff, Bob Haldeman, on April 13, 1973. Later that same day, the president talked with domestic affairs advisor John Ehrlichman. Well, they have quite a tale of horrors to tell. Uh, the bit of information that they had was that Hunt has decided to tell all of the grand jury Monday at 2. That um, uh, he, uh, and, and my, uh, the way they put it, it's not conclusive, but uh, my suspicion is that Pittman, his lawyer, made a deal with the government so that Pittman does not get caught in this obstruction of justice business. But uh, he will, Pittman, uh, Hunt's lawyer, uh, right, he will implicate uh, the committee lawyers, Parkinson and O'Brien, as the uh, bagmen and the, the transmitters of money through Hunt to the Cubans and uh, through Hunt to Mrs. Hunt for other people and so on and so forth. Why will Hunt do this, so they say? Uh, they think simply because he has no incentive to stand mute uh, now. Uh, he sees the whole thing going up in smoke, and he just doesn't want to uh, be the only guy holding the bag. Do you think he's going to get something out of it, though? Uh, I think Pittman is the guy who's getting something out of it. And, of course, Hunt purges himself of contempt when he does this. So uh, uh, he, he gets a little something out of it, certainly. This is, this, is, this is at the committee, however. No, no, this is at the grand jury.
other point, uh, if he wants to keep Hunt silent. One marginal piece of news that they brought in uh, that has Colson a little shook is that McCord has told the U.S. attorney that he participated in an operation with, Mc with Hunt uh, to uh, go out to Las Vegas, uh, leave their airplane with the engines going, standing by, go into town, bust Hank Greenspun's safe, steal, right. some, yeah, steal some stuff from it, jump back in the airplane and come on back, and that Colson masterminded it.
President Nixon and White House Domestic Affairs Advisor John Ehrlichman from April 13, 1973. Two days later, the president spoke with Assistant Attorney General Henry Peterson after getting word that White House Counsel John Dean had told the grand jury that Bob Haldeman had helped plan and cover up the Watergate break-in. Anything further you want to report tonight before our meeting tomorrow at 12.30? Thank you.
After hearing about John Dean's admission, John Ehrlichman called acting FBI director Patrick Gray. Pat, this is John Ehrlichman. Yes, John. Good evening. Did I find you at home? Yes, I'm at home. I wanted to tell you that um, John Dean has apparently um, uh, decided to make a clean breast of things with the uh, U.S. attorney. Uh, one of the questions that apparently they've been asking him is about the envelope that he turned over to you. Yeah, well, he better deny that. Well, he's apparently pretty much on the record on that. Thought I'd better alert you to it. What the hell am I going to do about that? I don't know. Is it, is it still in being? No. Let's see. I don't know. I was told that that was purely political and I destroyed it. I see. Well, it probably was. Is there any way you can turn him off? No. Hmm? No. Out of, out of uh, any, any orbit that we <laughs> cognize around here. So I just wanted to alert you to it. What other things do you think he's going to talk about? Well, he's putting the, he's putting the best face on his relations with uh, Peterson that he can. Peterson has sort of moved in on the prosecution. Uh -huh. What was he doing things with Peterson too? Yeah. I see. Um, you might you might want to take a look at your whole card where he's concerned because I don't know all the ins and outs of your relationship or you know what. Yeah, the only thing I can do with this is deny it. Okay. You're not going to back him up, are you? Uh, I can, you know.
White House Domestic Affairs Advisor John Ehrlichman, and Acting FBI Director Patrick Gray. Later that day, the president called Henry Peterson again. They talked about what John Dean knew and what would happen next. Yes, sir, Mr. President, trying to reach Dean, I think I could maybe able to get him. I hope before he seems to be in transit from someplace to someplace. But I will. Uh, I'll report to you after I see him. Very good. Anyway, in the meantime, on Liddy, I don't know the man, of course, and have no control over him. But help! You were to tell him. President Nixon and Assistant Attorney General Henry Peterson on April 15, 1973. Next time on Presidential Recordings, more calls between President Nixon and his White House aides as the fallout from the Watergate scandal continues to grow. Thanks to NixonTapes.org, the Miller Center at the University of Virginia, and the Richard Nixon Presidential Library and Museum. Remember to follow Presidential Recordings so you never miss an episode.